0: I mean, uh, we can't, by the way, there's like a book by Ian Buchanan where he does a schizoanalysis of film, in similar Zizek style. And there's also uh, a book by Eugene Holland where he does a schizoanalysis of Baudelaire going through all his poems and stuff. So, I mean, it's probably just, it's just not as popular. But then sliding with that, I would like to ask another question this specifically to Brooks. I mean, I only know Zizek really through his uh, um, his work on ontological incompleteness. And his work with Baidu and his work with Lacan. So, I mean, his experimental readings of Lacan. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know what's like the public perception of Zizek? because you were talking about him going on RT and stuff. I so, okay.
1: so, so, I, I think the sentence you just said puts you in a very, uh, and I, and I do not mean this to be dismissive at all. It puts you in a unique category of people when they talk about Zizek. There are people, there are a lot of people like you out there who that's the first thing they're like, oh, this is his, this is, and then there's people who I would say more like me who go, well, here, how I know Zizek is how he talks about movies, which sounds sort of simplistic, but it's what always has gotten to me, uh, all the way from uh, first his tragedy, then his farce, which I think is, it's fantastic sort of takedown of a lot of different things, but he does a ton of pop culture readings. Uh, His more dense works for people like me are worth getting through. And most of them are actually things that have driven me into the arms of other philosophers, as if it's a romantic thing. <laughs> um, because as I read through and he makes a point, like for example, uh, organs without bodies, every single time he would do a, what he considered probably a takedown of Deleuze, I'd go, Oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. I should go read more Deleuze. <laughs> and it's uh, the, the the perception of a lot of people. And I, and I don't want to speak for the world because I don't know them. <laughs> But uh, Zizek is a a cultural critic first and a philosopher second. Uh, And as a philosopher, I think most people don't take him too seriously in that regard, that it's much more of a uh, he is a step below a YouTuber philosopher. Uh, But but again, he has such massive impact. He sells out crowds and. Uh, I've, I've always been a believer in the concept of Gramsci's uh, cultural hegemony and the need for us to uh, take things down uh, culturally and to make, to affect people in from that direction rather than a purely intellectual one. And I consider Zizek, despite disagreeing with him on actually a number of things, I think he does a really good job in pushing people a little bit more towards the left and being critical of the cultural impact of the right on what we do um and i think things like and it's it's more nuanced his entire takedown of political correctness because it's not so much that he actually thinks that the left is politically correct he actually puts most of that on the right um and that's a tough thing i think for a lot of people to get around but when you do it's a moment of uh for me epiphany where it's suddenly like oh actually yes the left has some level of you know uh, self-censoring and political correctness but those things are more about how you deal with individuals and making sure you talk to trans people, you use the correct pronoun, or you talk to NBs, uh, you use the correct pronoun. There's That's more of dealing with people as though they're humans, right? whereas on the right, it's actual political correctness that's more censorship than anything else. And uh, the talks he gives on that, I think, expand on that significantly. And he does that so regularly, and he hits those notes so often. And, yes, he repeats himself, and we laugh about how every one of his books is basically repeating the last book. Um, or it's five or six essays that he's previously written, thrown together, just so that way he can get in advance. Um, you know, those kinds of things we laugh about. But because he hits those notes so cleanly and so consistently, it, uh, it, it gives people like my dad, who— will never read fucking Deleuze. My dad will never fucking read Deleuze. If he was 20, he'd never read fucking Deleuze, let alone being, you know, 60 plus. Um, but if I can get him to watch a little bit of Žižek, see some of his big think talks, which people laugh about because it's not super dense, those moments are where you actually start changing people's minds. He's kind of the corollary or he was to Peterson or to Sam Harris or, you know, one of those more pop culture philosopher types.
0: Yeah, I mean, I only know about Zizek through like his critique of like Quentin Meilishu. <laughs> so
1: know. again, very unusual uh, a direction to come at it from, and it's 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 framings like that that make I think uh, our conversation so interesting to me, and I think your takes so fascinating and and really helpful. I think most people when they read Zizek or they see Zizek, uh they make the joke about the sniffing, they enjoy that, they move on from there. And that's kind of the the setup. Um but it's it's really fascinating to watch how he as a culture warrior uh sort of exists in that grander scheme, at least to me. Yeah, every academic dunks on Zizek because he's an easy target, because he does sort of that broad, easy pop culture philosophy. He tells dirty jokes for fuck's sake.
0: Well, I mean, one thing that I find interesting about Jujic is, I mean, he's the kind of guy to mix, like, Wittgenstein and Heidegger together. That's definitely something very interesting.
1: I, I would agree with that. And and I think he does a lot of um, – uh, uh, Looking Awry is, is a book about sort of uh, the parallax view, and, and parallax view for Christ's sake. Um, the idea of looking at one philosopher through the eyes of another, I always found – Like, the first time I read through that, it was like, okay, this is an interesting way of doing it. And it's like, okay, let's take Duck and look at him through the eyes of Deleuze. Or let's take uh, person X through person Y. And it's it's helped me understand philosophers in a unique way, and I think added to my understanding of them. And I'm not saying it's a good understanding, but, you know, uh, people like me who don't have the... Uh, time or dedication or ability to do the doctoral thesis or to spend the seven years studying—I uh, think there's there's other ways we try to make impacts on the world, and the ability for us to understand and have even a partial grasp of some of these concepts helps us. And I, I'll talk at length at some point when I'm, especially when I'm doing the cinema series, uh, the deep inspiration those books gave me in how I develop interactive products uh, via video games, websites. Uh, currently, virtual reality—the the way that the perception image, the movement image, the time image, these things work and operate inside of cinema—I think is so far ahead of the curve when it comes to how people interact in virtual reality. And I'm not saying I have a full grasp of it, but it's some pretty amazing shit. And uh, I probably would horrify someone who's actually really well versed in it with my understanding, but. Uh, i think there's there's layers and it's it's necessary does that make sense for him? yeah all right well we've now been talking about zizek during our review session for about 15 minutes goddamn zizek always popping up when you don't want him um but i'll go ahead and uh, kick off the review session since uh, uh we're doing that uh Thank you all for coming. Uh, review sessions are pretty simple. Uh, we are not going to be doing a full reading of the book. Uh, all of you, please ask any questions you have regarding uh, this last section or con- uh, you know concepts that apply to the last section, uh, dealing with neuroses and psychoses. Uh, I have a handful, and I'm going to type them up in the uh, uh, <laughs> follow-up questions uh, section. But otherwise, uh, this is intended to be a sort of free-roaming uh, open ended conversation. So how are you guys doing by the way? Varun, Muskie, Jack, everyone? Kent? I'm doing fine.
2: Yeah, it's been a good day so far.
3: Best of my life.
1: Good. Good, good, good. Um so one of the things uh I'm I don't wanna like jump straight to the end of the chapter, but it may be, I don't know, it, it may be the, 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 the big focus for me as I was uh, kind of re-reading this and setting up is uh, how, how the Oedipal Triangle relates to neuroses and psychoses. And I know we talked a little bit about it and they, they go over it in chapters, but my brain for some reason is not able to fully grasp how one is inside and implicit inside of the triangle and the other is almost external or explicit. And they talk about that inside of the thing. So I'd love to, if anyone could kick that off, uh, I may drop off randomly here, but please, um, if anyone has conversations or thoughts on that, I'd love to hear because the closest I can come is that, um, uh, The neurotic, uh, by nature, is about uh, the things that happen or the relationship between myself and the mother, myself and the father within the triangle, whereas uh, psychotic uh, psychosis uh, is actually about external factors uh, impinging upon the triangle. That doesn't feel satisfying to me as I say it out loud.
2: My sort of impression of that section was less that they were arguing that that's the way that this works and more that they were characterizing a certain um like strain of psychoanalytic analytic thought that you know had an easy time interpreting Oedipus into neurosis but had a harder time finding it in psychosis right unless there were these really weird like they give the example of the capgrass uh the people who developed capgrass delusion and how they wanted to have like that was like an example of a Oedipal triangle in a psychotic episode mm, i don't know where it was very explicit right but they wanted to have sex with their mother who was uh, also a false double of their mother or however that story goes <sighs> ah, i don't know i lost i lost my train of thought <laughs>
3: um i'll say too i think part of it is um so part of Freud's distinction about the neurotic and the uh, the psychotic is going to be how they relate to reality, right? And that's going to be really important for Freud because of the reality principle and the way he's he's setting up how he understands the unconscious and the ego and how that's going to be the mediator of uh, the it and the reality. And so I could even see how that breaches into like, the virtual map. So I'd say one place to start with that question is um, how it's going to impact the relationship to reality.
2: Well, but they're going to say that Oedipus is undecidable, right? So aren't they going to like, because they wouldn't answer that. You know, don't they not kind of not answer that question? You'd be like, well, Oedipus is undecidable. It can be anywhere and you can find it anywhere and it doesn't matter. Or maybe they wouldn't go so far as to say it doesn't matter, but um, they definitely call it undecidable.
3: Um, Brutz, I think the beginning of uh, an answer to your question can come with um, just the way they open up the chapter where in neurosis, the ego obeys the requirements of reality and stands ready to repress the drives of the id. Whereas in psychosis, the ego is under the sway of the id ready to break with reality. So like... Right for Freud, he's already setting up that the ego uh, mitigates the id and makes it socially acceptable um, and, and sort of bridges it with reality and uh, without going too far into this, uh, the superego and that construct. Whereas the psychotic um, is a threat to, um, for th- Freud's understanding, there is a threat to reality. Um, it's trying to break with reality, as, as he seems to be saying. And so I would say um, the beginning of an answer might be in that, where um, you can kind of see how the, the different investments are going on there in terms of like uh, the reactionary investment with the neurotic and the way of like social and psychic repression can be uh, administered there. Because uh, the ego is operating not simply according to an e- uh, a reality principle, but it's willing to, um, at least in the Freudian model, I think, it's willing to obey um, not just a certain oedipalization, but it's willing to obey like the, the social repression that can come with that, as opposed to the psychotic in um, that distinction where uh, the psychotic would be capable of breaking out of that, by which uh, Freud would counter, yes, but they're detached from reality.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that that is a That makes sense to me, right? Because when you have a reality principle, an ego in a neurotic that's mitigating the id, right? If the Oedipus complex is an inherent part of the unconscious, and it's so it's therefore part of the id, hangs out down there in that part of consciousness, in a neurotic where there's a reality principle or an ego, it's going to be latent, right? The Whatever Oedipus, however it's operating in their psyche, if you're Freud, it's going to be, you have to interpret it, you have to take it, and you have to apply it to the patient, right? You have to kind of Oedipalize the patient and then in the psychotic according to Freud right what you should see is that id busting through and so Oedipus should be everywhere in the delusions but then Deleuze and Guattari go through some examples right where that's not exactly what's going on and the instead the psychoanalyst has to go in and like look at Judge Schreiber being you know uh what what is what happens to Judge Schreiber he's like the wife of God or he's got sunbeams in his ass and then they have to go oh well that was your father which is a sort of Oedipalization that you know the psychotic resists and then that gets into that example they were talking about with the the virgin uh later in this chapter oh sure it's my mom anything can be my mom i can make whatever reality i want out of that
3: yeah and that becomes important too because if in the freudian model right the it is um Sort of uh, the it is going to like work with the pleasure principle and start producing desires, right? Whereas um, the 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 very beginning of this book displaces that whole thing. So that that's going to pose a big monkey wrench, or shouldn't say a monkey wrench, but that's going to be a major difference between Freud and now Deleuze and Guattari. Okay,
2: I so I guess we don't know whether or not that's satisfactory. Satisfactorily answered Brooks' is question because uh, they bounced, but I guess we can move on, right?
3: It's a good thing I prefaced it as the beginning of an answer. <laughs>
4: yeah, <it> worked out. <laughs> well, there's a sentence here: undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional. Such is Oedipus. Wonder what that
2: means yeah the way they use the term undecidable is sort of interesting right because isn't undecidable uh, a term that Derrida uses uh yeah yeah I
4: mean it, 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 it seems out of place here but I can't I can't can't put uh you know I, Undecidability is something that comes up in proof theory, for instance. If you can't actually prove something, something can become undecidable.
2: So that meaning makes sense, I think, because Oedipus is always posited and rarely like, proved, and at least according to them, right?
4: Well, do you think that's what they mean by it, is that it's, it can't be proved? So it's just out there as a global interpretation that gets posited but never... Uh, never actually realized in a proof or something
2: like that? There's another sentence earlier, and I'm going to look for it, where they first talk about Oedipus being undecidable.
4: You know, maybe that it also, maybe it's something to do with the translation. Seems like the word is. I think, I think,
2: I think you're onto something because the way that Derrida uses it doesn't really make sense in this context, right? Where it's a sort of an undecidable for Derrida has to do with like the meaning of words. It's, it's more of like a linguistics thing, if I understand correctly. But where they say here, fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border or frontier phenomena ready to cross over from one side to the other. In sort, Oedipus is strictly undecidable. I think that sort of fits in more with what you were saying, right? You can't prove, you can't look at fantasies or, you know, dreams, neuroses, and then put, you know, preg- they're not pregnant with meaning, right, is what they're saying. And so Oedipus is undecidable because Oedipus is relying on that sort of meaning always being there in a fantasy that, you know, and they're saying, well, that's not the way fantasy works. It's a border form that can push into new realities and, and such and so on.
4: Where's where that sentence? I mean,
0: yeah. I, I think, I, I think the key here is that they're the transcendence of Oedipus. I think that's what they're trying to highlight to a certain degree, right? that, so what they did so eloquently, or maybe what they maybe not eloquently is not a good word. But what they did so, uh, so so forcefully was in the first uh, in the first chapter they they used Kantian critique to find uh, the imminent criteria of the unconscious and now what we're doing is instead of what they're saying is oedipus is no longer imminent it's now transcendent in the case that it's not complying to that set of imminent criteria hence it's hence it's a transcendent and so what happens is if as soon as you get and that's why it's really a representation in this case that it can it works it's almost like it's pulling everything together right uh, I think one of the good example is that it's it's same way Lacan's phallus pulls everything together. It's 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 pulling everything together in that sense that it it takes all the flows and it manifests them in a certain manner.
4: I th- well, I think you're right about that. Oedipus is. I mean, they're presenting it as something that pulls things together. I like that phrase.
3: I think, too, it's interesting where they give the example of um, Capgris and uh, Corette to, to Varun's point, where um, right, like it's the complete inversion of Oedipus, right? Where you instead of a man, uh, you have a woman. Um, instead of a desire to um, sleep with the mother, you have a desire to sleep with the father and so on, right? Like that simple move where the Oedipal can't even really respond to gender right because if you're in the Edible mindset right if you're a woman you can only like be a mother so that you can really see the um the disconnection there
2: and i think i think the other cool thing is that like the the way that that delusion works right is that it's only on the condition of your father being a imposter do you want to have sex with him, right? I think that's what they said. And an incestuous desire for her father, but under the conditions of reality loss where the parents were lived as false parents or doubles.
3: Yeah, and I I took the false parents back to even be like, it almost sounds like um, the relationship this woman has with her parents is not the relationship that um, the Oedipal Complex presumes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: You know, going back to uh, this, this sentence that you read, uh, Muskie, that, you know, fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border on border or frontier phenomena ready to cross over to one side or the other. In short, Oedipus is strictly undecidable. It can be found everywhere all the more readily for being undecidable. In some sense, it is correct to say that Oedipus is strictly good for nothing. Uh, You know, uh, Lacan Lacan has this particular formula for um, fantasy. Has the object ah and the subject crossed out, and makes up his own operator to you um, Yeah, it seems like this is a uh, uh, you know a, an attempt to redefine what fantasy is as a non uh, in a non Lacanian way. I think that's that might be connected to this idea that. That the Oedipus is undecidable, but I'm not sure.
2: Yeah, I think I think that makes sense to me too. Um, it definitely seems like a critique, right? Because if I'm my very shaky knowledge of Lacan, I'm pretty sure that um, the fantasy and the imagination is like a feminine force in his work, and so pregnant pregnant is probably in some way directly a critique of that, perhaps, perhaps.
4: So I just wish, I, I just wish they'd been more a little more specific so that I could tell exactly what they meant. But
3: if you look at the uh, the top of the sentence paragraph, we now come to the realization that the simple opposition between the two groups is inadequate, an opposition that will allow one to define neurosis as an intra-edipal disorder and psychosis as an extra-edipal escape. I think that kind of speaks to what they're they're going to say there is like using Oedipus to understand neurosis and psychosis in terms of what is within the Oedipal and what it tries to escape the Oedipal from within. Um, ultimately, right. is like, it's, it's useless. And in, in the sense that's undecidable, I think it's like, when you, it goes back to that, that first case study, right. Like is you know, wh- whether or not you look at Jung's joke about, um, somebody giving up uh, the opportunity to sleep with their mother for a younger woman. (laughs) Or um, just looking at this case here, where how do you as a woman who isn't a man? Right, like in that sense, I think they're trying to say, like, it it just simply doesn't connect.
4: You know, there's a more general phenomenon that they could be referring to here, which is that uh, somebody will come up with a theory in a specific, you know, regional ontology. And then, uh, and then either that person or other people will apply it to everything. And suddenly it doesn't mean anything at all because you've applied it to everything. And, and definitely I could see how Oedipus, that could have happened with this Oedipus complex psychotherapy. They started applying it to everything and suddenly it doesn't mean anything.
0: Right. I mean, uh, another way to think about this, perhaps, would be to look at you know, the very classical anti-psychiatrist uh, R.D. Lang thing, right? That you know your disposition is not something that you're biologically inherited to. It's that it's created by either uh, a complex set of environments. And I mean, that's that's what they're what they see. Oedipus as right? It's created by a complex set of environments for edipolization, and then you have social repression that where the, where psychic repression basically psychic repression basically causes you to desire more social repression, and it creates almost a feedback loop to a certain degree, and. Uh, and then that, that, I guess that's why Oedipus works uh, in the sense that it's, it, it, it's, it's applied to something. That's why they use the term Oedipalized, right? It's not that Oedipus is some real thing out there. It's Oedipalized and it, it, it falls back upon literally.
2: Yeah, I I like what you were saying about using like verb "Oedipalized," right? Because I think that's at least that's how I read the sentence. Fantasies aren't aren't pregnant forms. Like Oedipus isn't inherent in uh, anyone's fantasy or delusion or dreams or anything, right? It's not. Oedipus isn't somehow contained by that fantasy as if it were pregnant with that with Oedipus, right? It's just it's taken and it's you know. It's an Oedipalization process. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's going to have significant... Um, that's going to significantly weigh in on like the interpretation of reality, right? Because if if the neurotic and psychotic in relation to the reality principle relies on reality as being Oedipal, so that is to say if we're going to not only interpret um, people's psyches through Oedipus, but we're also going to interpret how they relate to reality through Oedipus, right? To, to start to move out of that. Deleuze and Gwadri are going to say, uh, when you start moving out of that point, uh, that point, and this is 126, uh, everything can be, con- so like in reference to the Oedipal, everything can be converted into neurosis or warped out of shape into psychosis. It is therefore not in this fashion that the question must be posed it would be inaccurate to maintain an Oedipal interpretation for the neuroses and to reserve an extra Oedipal explanation for the psychoses. There are not two groups. There is no difference in nature between uh, neuroses and psychoses. So I, I think that's going to impinge a lot here because that's that's going to directly impact the way psychoanalysis is understanding uh not only the neurotic and psychotic distinctions but those distinctions as people relate to reality
2: yeah i think that's really well said I, it reminds me of that section where they go to talk on um like uh, neurosis and psychoneurosis where they, they talk about irreversible structures and it makes sense to me at least how having oedipus as a irreversible inherent structure in the unconscious would you know sort of lead you to depoliticize Neuroses, instead of looking at it and you know being like, well, wait, what are the sort of you know social structures that are causing this?
4: And I just think it's uh, worthwhile keeping in mind that you know I mean they're talking about Oedipus, it's it's function within psychotherapy, but I think more generally they're talking about ideologies in general. They're just. Using a specific example to get at the details of what's happening in this particular ideology, but ideologies in general have these problems.
5: Yeah,
0: I, I think that's a great connection because that's really one of the key roles of the body without organs, right? The fact that the body without organs is essentially the meaning system, right? It's it's the semiotics of the unconscious. That's what happens in the body without organs, and. Uh, Another aspect is that the, you know, it's one of Deleuze and Guadagni's takes is right. that things get recorded on. So Oedipus gets recorded on and all fixed meaning starts getting derived in that sense from the Oedipus recorded on. And that's where ideology lies, very much on the body without organs itself. And that's how it works. That's how it's able to be powerful to a certain degree. Well,
4: uh, one of the th- interesting things is that I, I decided to go back to the uh, play. Analyze it. I read a paper about it recently. And uh, one of the things that I, I realized for it, for the interpretation to work in terms of the three syntheses, was that you had to assume that it was the body of the family that was written on by violence, not any one member. I think that's something that's worth keeping in mind. Body here doesn't necessarily mean uh, individuals. It it, it it could be more generally the the body of a collective.
3: Yeah, and to that um, I make two brief points. Right, and I think Kent, you're, you're zeroing in on this. Like for the for Greek life, life doesn't make sense without the polis. So like even the Oedipal story that only made sense because of its relationship to the polis, right? Like it's not just a family, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, in the chorus, the role of the chorus in play speaks to this, but um, it, it works because of the social connection. It works because of, um, because the polis is looking for a king. Um, There's, there's a larger contextuality that, that play relies on and that, um, is at work there in, in Greek tragedy itself. Um, the second thing I was going to say, if I haven't forgotten it, um, and perhaps I have forgotten. Just
4: going back to what you were saying about the Greek play, you know, it's good to keep in mind that this was, this was a Dionysian festival. And basically, what they were doing by putting on these tragedies and comedies was reflecting back the city. To itself, so that it's you know it's a reflective, uh, socially reflective operation, and uh, and so by putting on the the three Oedipus plays, there's um, you know uh, the 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 horrors of what could happen if you deviate from the patriarchal system were on display. Oh.
3: And you know, I just remembered my point. Um, It's also like where they write, the Oedipal Triangle vibrates and trembles.
4: Oh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Where's that?
3: Uh, That is at the top of 120 sets. And right like that, that speaks to a lot of this because um, right when we're talking about the family, one way of understanding the Oedipal Triangle is through the family. And the way that that, like because they're talking about it roaring and rumbling, like, you know, that that connects it with desiring machines, but it also means it also allows desiring machines to take the precedence. And therefore, actually, like, uh, the way I'm reading that is, like, that connection actually allows it to move out of the Oedipal, where later on they're going to write, um, at the top of 127, for in any case, desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic subversions that shatter Oedipus or overwhelm it and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it yeah it's good and it brings us back to like what we were talking about in earlier sections with the reactionary and revolutionary unconscious investments because i think even like i cannot remember the passage i tried to flip through to find it but they even like they make this distinction where like even ideology um When you start applying the 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 metaphysics they're outlining here, uh, like ideology is not happening at the unconscious level, and they, I can't remember what they give you um, to think about instead of ideology, but it it is an interesting transformation.
4: I like that image of the vibrating and trembling of the triangle. You know, It's, it's kind of like. There's something going on under the surface where those desiring machines are, and the uh, and the uh, you know it's kind of like there's a little earthquake here, and we don't quite know exactly what's happening under the surface.
3: Yeah, and at the other side, like it's like how the book opens up with desiring production, the whirring of machines, everything stops, and that's how you get to the body of the organs, right? Like you know even the, the even the Oedipal triangle if you're going to accept it like it can't that triangle can't even get away from desiring production for uh, Deleuze and watery
2: I'm thinking uh, about what Winter said in the chat and I'm not fully sure I understand it but I think there's something there that is worth understanding like uh, Okay, so they say it's also a way to annihilate sympathy for the tragic figure in the play as it ostracizes the patient. So I wonder if they're talking about the incest and or how ideology or that uh, that quote from Foucault about how um, the therapy is like alienating. How does it go? The mental illness is alienated totally in the body of the therapist. It's from like a couple chapters ago of mental illness is entirely alienated in the real person of his doctor. The doctor dissipates the reality of the mental illness in the critical concept of madness.
4: Yeah, and Foucault has a whole book about that. The history of madness or madness and civilization. Yeah, I mean, Deleuze also
0: has his uh, collection of essays, uh, essays on clinical and the critical that go into some of that. I think even even his little book on uh, masochism has some of that in it about symptomatology and stuff like that. It's interesting work.
2: So I wonder then, is this if this is like a characterization of a reactionary investment? Mm, right. go ahead.
3: yeah, I mean, I think there is a reactionary investment going on here, right? but like, even the way that would be sort of like triangulated into the neurotic and the psychotic, right? Like the way that's starting to in and of itself be de in the section, it, it opens up new questions about like how we should even be understanding people in relation to reality, right? If we're going to talk about their psychological relationship, um, between the unconscious and between, uh, you know, what's out there in the world, and we can't do it uh, through an Oedipal connection, then all of a sudden, you know, it opens up a lot of new space for us. That's
2: what's so inspiring about the, the, their idea of desiring production. It gets at that same feeling of, like, the, like, life-affirming that is in Nietzsche for me.
4: Yeah, I think that's the major motivation Deleuze has, is to try to come up with a, a life-affirming uh, interpretation that's not, not doesn't focus on negativity like Sartre did, like Lacan did.
0: I mean, not just this aspect of affirmation, but this idea that to have an ethics uh that's completely imminent rather than one that focuses on morality, making it transcendent, right? I think he has a whole book on this, but it's, it's that idea that, uh, you know, if, if you want an imminent ethics, you need to judge people based on their, it's almost very, it's very Spinoza, right? You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to make the judgments based on people's capacities, right? Rather than their, their, their possibilities or potentials, rather than their actualities,
3: Yeah, I think that made sense, right? And if you, if you want to talk about people's actualities and capacities in relation to their environment or the situation at hand, or reality or whatever, right? Then like, you really don't need the Oedipal for that. In the same way, like Verona is saying, you don't really need, you don't necessarily need that that intermediary, um, to sort of stand above it.
2: You don't need transcendent morality. You don't need the transcendent phallus.
0: Well, I mean, not just that, but those transcendent things push back, like they, they, they make things worse, right? That's the prohibition of incest and stuff. And that's the whole idea of, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's where desire gets stuck in its rut, basically.
2: Cool. Uh, okay, I think we got a pretty good understanding of uh, why they hate Oedipus, the Oedipus complex, so much.
4: Well, okay, so it, it should it should be remembered that you know in the fifties, sixties, people were obsessed with stuff.
2: Yeah. And recently I got really into like I got I was listening to a podcast about lobotomies and just like how messed up that whole context is when you think about it. Right. Because that's the body of work that they're, you know, grappling with to some extent right psychoanalysis and like the talk therapy was the background of this like horrible medical mistreatment that was going on you know one hand is doing the Oedipus complex and the other hand is doing like lobotomies and asylums
4: excellent point excellent
2: yeah they didn't make lobotomies illegal in in the United States until like 1967 and this book comes out like 72, I think.
3: Yeah, and even then, right? Like, you've got, I mean, just in the US, I know like a electroshock therapy was um, on the table. Um, you know, there's, one flew over the cuckoo's nest is actually one of my favorite examples of this. And it does speak to the problem of lobotomy to cure people, right? Because what do they do with lobotomy? Well, they do it to a sane person. <laughs> so. Those um, moments in the story, but yeah, I, I think I agree with Ken. That is a really good point to bring up, is that um, you know th- there is sort of the way that this stuff can be not only institutionalized but even weaponized.
4: You know, uh, I didn't watch all of it, but I, I, I think I watched the first season of Mad Men, and in there there is a scene where the wife goes to see the psychiatrist. And she leaves, and the psychiatrist calls up the husband, tells him everything she said. And when I saw that, I was shocked. Then I realized that was probably going on.
0: Uh, wait! Before, uh, so is asking a question: Why they dislike the Oedipal complex? Someone's write one sentence to summarize. I missed everything. I just joined. So uh, this is uh, this is pretty much the topic of this whole book. So uh, I, I, I guess uh, I'll just try and simplify it into one sentence then. Um, essentially, first of all, again, we've been reiterating this so many times because it seems to be a misconception on places like Twitter and stuff. They're, they're not denying Oedipus. They're saying Oedipus happens. It's when You know, the Oedipus complex is happening when 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 there is a desire to uh, kill your father and sleep with your mom. But the thing is that uh, what Oedipus is, what they mean by Oedipalization is that essentially, because of the way Oedipal desire can be recorded on the body without organs, because all of that can happen, and because like meaning can be moved in such such a way, Oedipalization is basically that idea that there's an outside force it comes in and it forces you to behave in certain matters. It forces you to move in certain structures. It forces you to, uh, do certain things in certain manners and it's because you know you're you you do not have control of your flow of desire your flow of desire is coming from something else and you're produced as the ritual, residual subjectivity of that flow so Oedip- edipalization on the body without organs is what happens when everything is is, is 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 going in one specific direction and you're being almost controlled to that extent so uh that's that's pretty much the role of the body without organs and oedipus together there I mean, and one way to think about edipalization is like, uh, you know, imperialism, right? It's 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 if uh, the the imperialists come on a native land and then they tell, they, they basically tell everyone, all right, so you have to behave in this certain manner. That's mm-hmm. edipalization. But I mean, they're talking about something much different because what they're talking about is happening much more unconsciously than that example. So,
3: you know, if you walk that out too with what Muskie was talking about and some of our earlier points too. So like I've suggested that displacement is kind of like a bait and switch. Um, And so I think if you apply that even with the psychotic and neurotic, right? In terms of like, what do you do with these people, right? So like neurotics can be, you know, treated because they have, um, they fit a certain designation of how to relate to reality. And therefore they can be called neurotic and they can go through psychoanalysis and that, right? And then you can have the, um, you know, you can have the familial triangle, familial triangulization. Ugh. You can have the familial triangularization so acting as the agent of social uh, repression and the psychic repression. But then with the psychotic, that becomes a whole nother issue because if they can't fit into that, then, um, you know, the question becomes, what do you do with them? And it's probably going to be your psychotic people that do go into things like the asylums. Because, um, at least for Deleuze and Glottery, right? Because they would be unable to desire the social repression, and what's more, their desires would threaten the social structure,
0: Right. And then I'd just like to reiterate uh, the goal of psychic repression, then, is to cause you to desire more social repression. And, And social repression works back on psychic repression, creating this massive feedback loop almost.
3: Yeah, precisely. And with that psychic repression, right, like that's psychic repression, if I'm not mistaken, is more or less connected to the Oedipal as opposed to social repression which isn't necessarily um, truly edible, And I, that's why I call it a bait and switch.
2: So is it right to say that that sort of investment in psychic repression and in social repression is the sort of reactionary desire that they uh, um, talk about, that we were talking about?
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it... I think it definitely can be. Um, we got to be careful because they say desire is itself revolutionary. But yeah, in terms of like libidinal investment, yeah, I think that's probably right. The reactionary investment goes into conserving the social structures and goes into conserving uh, the structure of your neuroticism. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I don't mean to straw man Freud with this this quote, but I think he once said something to the effect of like the goal of psychoanalysis is to take um, an unbearable uh misery and turn into um, a bearable life of melancholy or something like that.
2: I've I've heard that before. Um I've heard that in therapy, and I think but I think it was Klein in reference I heard that too Where like the highest functioning state Is just sort of Melancholy it's not like Happiness you're just kind of You know Vaguely sad I don't know
0: Yeah yeah, yeah.
3: And as a neurotic right uh, Go ahead Varun
0: I think the key thing to hear say also here is to reiterate that notion of the double bind of Oedipus, where the cure itself, it's very much the disease. What psychoanalysis like seems the cure is very much the disease, right? Yeah. You know, I- You enter in, Oedipus is something you enter into. And and then Oedipus is just, you know, it's a paradoxical choice, a double bind essentially between two equally undesirable desires and thereby fall into a black hole of either neurosis or social ostracism. You get, you know, you get to, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't pretty much.
3: Yeah. And in another way, like I was thinking more about their use of the full Nelson um, and I think, like even with the way Varun just said that, in terms of you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, like there's a certain immobility that comes with that, like a certain kind of paralysis, where it's like it's not just your, you know, what do I do? It's it's almost like someone's got you in a lock and you can't really move because you know you're you're in a grapple.
0: So uh, Hera is asking a question about uh, capitalism and schizophrenia. So essentially what happens... No, no, with, I'm
6: joking. No, that was a joke. Sorry. Okay,
0: I was going to... Sh- uh, should I just... I was going to... Because I was going to explain the Marx-Freud parallel, but okay. I mean, no one's asking a question. I can, we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, reading
2: the text is not required. I, I was on the, under the impression that reading the text is not required. I, um, I i think there's something well, it's, cool hard, to be it's said. hard to
4: ask good questions if you don't read the text
2: that is also true
4: uh, but but we're welcoming everybody because you know uh one of the best ways to learn is just to listen to other people discussing
0: um so whatever i'll just say what i was going to say that because uh what they're going to talk about is how fixed meaning works in the capitalist system, right? That if capital has a body without organs to it, essentially where, where you know, subjectivity is produced by the system and your subjectivity is not your choices. It's what you're being produced by the system itself. So if, if you're being produced by the system itself and meaning is always being distorted with capitalism's ability to distort meaning, what happens essentially is that, um, you know, you get... Uh, They're going to later talk about this a lot in Chapter 3, so I don't know if this is a serious question, but that's where schizophrenia comes in.
3: Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, schizophrenia is going to be like, in terms of this section, schizophrenia is going to be labeled as a kind of psychosis. And it's like we said before, right? Like Schizophrenia can be called a psychosis for Freudian psychoanalysis because, I want to get this right, uh because for schizophrenia as a psychosis the ego is under the sway of the id ready to break with reality and so yesterday i made the connections with like really that's where they were talking about malone putting the rots in his mouth right so, so
0: there's a. I think the key thing here is that there are two poles to it, right? This is what we've been talking about so much uh, from the beginning. There's a schizophrenic pole, and there's a, there's a paranoiac pole. And the best place, if you want, if, if if you want to look look at this happening very clearly, just go to the first five pages of this book. Uh, the schizophrenic pole is something like that creative where libido is revolution. Am I cracking? Am I cracking? Yes. Okay. So is it better now? <laughs> keep going? Yeah. So, uh, the schizophrenic pole is essentially where you have this sort of unlimited semiosis and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a bad example, but I'll just it's what everyone says. So it's, it's where that whole artistic production is happening everywhere. It's about Judge Schraber wanting to be in contact with the profound bliss of everything. And paranoiac is what happens when the institutions and so repression starts coming in. And that's uh, that's what ha- the paranoiac is, is. is what, you know, when we think traditionally, when we think of schizophrenia, that's uh, that's what the paranoiac is. It's the sort of you're a completely repressed zombie that you're just in that... Completely depressed, almost a, a depressed, like a dilapidated state, as opposed to the, as opposed to the whole, um, the whole artistic state. And the thing about capitalism is that they're going to say that if desiring production and and is desiring production is a social production, right? Desiring production and social production don't make. Are are the same thing, but of different regimes, and they're divided specifically about ca- in ca- in a capitalist system. But uh, w- and if if they're both of, the, of, the, of pretty much the same thing, if libido is always being invested outside into the social field, what happens is there's a similar thing within the entire capitalist system, right? <laughs> that uh, that there is a capital has a paranoiac ability and a schizophrenic ability at the same time. There's something revolutionary and there's something reactive about it at the same time. It's, it's simply a contradiction, but there's no contradictions, any degrees of black humor in this book.
3: Yeah, if I remember correctly, when you have the two investments at the same time at that level, that feels like a delirium. Uh, i was thinking about that more today too in terms of like how to understanding uh how to understand the second synthesis and like you know where the recording that's going on in life and like the recording that goes on in terms of like uh distributions and the or 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 and i was thinking about that more in terms of like um what's been going on with um Using an easy example with like uh people who are uh working during covid and how they get um so like they get their images get recorded onto um well no Alyosha, you're not a hero <laughs> no i'm just messing with you dude um yeah. <laughs> so how their images get recorded onto capital which is to say like the funoco pops we were talking about where you know the very not just the idea that somebody would be a hero for working during the COVID thing, but that um, <laughs> that there uh, that that there can be an image of that that gets recorded on capital and, and and distributed that way. Alternatively, like when you when you go to something like um, so I go to Aldi, but like the grocery store, and those people are there. Like there's a way that that stuff is recorded in terms of money right like part of the reason they they're heroes is not just because they're working it's because they're still on the payroll and that's allowing the economy to continue which in the US um, is the priority at least i would say it's it's almost the denominator in the equation right like how much health can you give up to keep up so much economy like the, the, the economic health takes the precedence which is recorded on the surface of capital, right? It's not just the, um, you know, it's not just the monetary transactions. It's the way it's all structured together and flows through that structure.
2: I think that's well said, that there's this sort of site of the COVID worker hero that is recorded in money and Funko Pops, but is also occupied by people. But it's not, you know, they just sort of pass through it
3: yeah if and if it's not funko pops right like it's going to be the fact that they're on the payroll right like it's just the um
2: or commercials or uh yeah i've seen signs people put up signs sometimes people buy uh presents for the cashiers just or 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 or
3: Yeah, exactly right. It's distributed through capital, through the buying of signs, through the creation of signs as a capital or a commodity. Like it goes so deep, even the, you know, like what's the proof of you being an essential worker or at least having worked as an essential worker? It's going to be your payroll record, the evidence that you were paid during that time, which is also what keeps you from getting unemployment, which is an interesting irony. But I suppose if I were going to try and connect that directly into the section, like part of what I would say is like, um, you know, in in terms of how you as an essential worker relate with your family and the social, there's a way that that's supposed to be done, I think, kind of neurotically. Where like uh, in an Oedipal sense, like you doing this is sort of like, you know, it's not just heroic. It's also like, um, It's almost like in some ways, like, uh, you could almost go so far as to say, like, your father is incapable of doing something. The institution is incapable of doing something. And so, like, you as an essential worker, as something standing in for the Oedipal, is going beyond the father to do this.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to. I, I I thought you were going to say something about like morality, right? Where there's this like you're morally good for showing up at work, you know, during this COVID thing, um, and that that has that sort of Oedipal <laughs> valence to it too. But I think you said it better. Where you're, if you are an an Oedipalist and you look at institutions as expressions of the father, and that institution is failing, then stepping up to fulfill that role is a pretty oedipal process
3: yeah and to make a quick quick point in relation to that it matches like if you want to take this into freud and the superego, you know you you could go so far as to say like that's when the super that that's you listening to the super ego right like, that's you going so far as to say yeah that is the moral thing to do and it's the moral thing to do because like in the Freudian context we're talking about here, it, it it's part of the triangulation of the family between you and the institution.
0: I mean, I, I've, I've been having one problem with this book, specifically that the Lewis and Gaudry are not so much... Uh, I mean, I've been having this problem for a while, that the Lewis and Gaudry are not so much... Uh, there's almost something... You know, there's something that they've placed on desire that, that's almost something that they've uh, taken so to such a limit, right? The desire is always revolutionary. I don't, I don't know how much I, I think they're not really materialists in this book. If you look at a uh, difference in repetition, Deleuze is such a strong, a transcendental empiricist, but it's, it's still a very materialistic book. And, uh, as is coming in like that whole history, which I'm guessing this was the one that started that whole tradition and friends of limited materialism and Jean-Francois Lyotard and stuff. Uh, it's it's, it's 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 pretty much libidinal materialism right that it's uh, it's a sense that they see desire as being being what uh, constitutes itself, right? That desire is what allows the synthesis to happen. Desire is what couples flows together. And uh, desire is, is you know, because they, they take the Kant's argument, right? And one way I've been trying to figure it out, me and Kent have been having some discussions on these, is that uh, one, the only way you can understand the Kantianism in this book is if you read Maimon's reading of Kant, where he considers, where Maimon says, reason has to find a way to constitute itself. In the sense that reason has to be the one engendering the synthesis, and that's what desire is doing. So I mean, it's 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 very it's coming from that Maimon and that whole post-Kantian tradition of uh, desire, it, like where 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 Maimon's argument was. Uh, Reason has to do this genetic thing where it has to engender itself. Desire is doing something very similar here. And, you know, that whole notion of sexuality being everywhere, it's very similar to Nietzsche's notion of uh, that there are multiplicity of drives in a person's body. And so what happens is uh, the drives take control of somebody's body. And that's what libido is doing to a certain degree. But (laughs) I don't know. It's... To say that uh, libido is what's constituting itself and everything else, almost sounding very mystical to me.
2: So, someone in the chat wants us to define materialism, and I can give a sort of shoddy definition, but I I think the best way to explain it is that it's a philosophical school where you privilege material things, right, the physical world over. Ideas, right? So, an example of a materialist is Marx, and an example of an idealist is Kant. And the criticism is well,
0: I mean, I, if, if he can't, I, mean, I, I don't want to bring Kant into this because that might cause a little bit of confusion. But I think if you want a clear distinction between someone who's a materialist and someone who's not, just look at Aristotle and Plato, right?
2: Okay, I think that works. Yeah, where Plato is the idealist, right, with the forms, and Aristotle is the materialist.
3: The the classic one that I I usually see referenced is because uh, like Aristotle's got the idea that all things participate in like a certain essence or ness. So all donuts participate in donutness, but there's not necessarily the donut form. I, I think it's easier if you want to just make a quick comparison uh marx is a materialist versus berkeley is an idealist
6: um so i asked to define materialism because i think in these discussions are people now materialists or are they idealists especially when we talk about this in relation to marxism you get this really vague notion of materialism where no one actually has really an idea what is the material we are talking about, right? So, and in that, I would ask, well, we don't need to commit, or uh, if your criticism isn't committing to calling the listen category here idealist, but just not materialist, I would ask, what material are you missing here? like what's what's this distinction between the exact distinction between what they do here and materialism um I think there's um a trap we can fall into here is to treat desire in this freudian individualist way. Right? Having the discussion the individual floating around sometimes, but they don't really talk about that, right? So their desire is a personal, pre individual, it's direct production. That's that's where they talk in the first chapter about Kant, right? Where they talk about the disconnect in Kant, uh, where desire in Kant can't be productive because it's shut in in the, the individual. It's idealist. It isn't part of production. You imagine, you wish for something, and then magically there's a gap, but something happens out in the world. You can you can wish for something mm-hmm. to 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 you can be the cause of change, but you can't really find the connection between you and the change. And that's the gap they want to bridge. And in that sense, they are not idealist because they abandon the gap and get rid of interior- interiority.
0: I mean, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I don't think they're idealists at all. I don't I don't think there's any idealism in this book. I think this book's a big critique of idealism. What what I what I do I, and I do think they're materialists. But what I'm asking is, do, have have they given desire too much priority? I mean, are we thinking about desire too optimistically here? That desire is, is is able to do all these things almost. So uh, my answer
4: to, my answer to that is that um, they're trying to go to a place. Prior to the split between humans and nature, and so and so, but but they're doing it in a kind of odd way. In that, you know, when you say desiring machines, the desiring part is the human, the machine part is the nature, you know. At, but but they don't mean uh, physical machines. They mean something which is uh, at at a uh, so, something that's indistinct. Um, so there's some level where things are indistinct, where desire and things like machines actually become one thing. So this is this move is very similar to the move Heidegger makes to get beyond subject and object to Dasein, which is something prior to the arising of the difference between subject and object. They're they're trying to get to a place prior to the uh, rising of the difference between the humans and the uh, nature, and uh, and wh- what's wh- something I just discovered, which is interesting, is that Heidegger has a a book called The History of the Concept of Time, which was one of his courses, and that's precisely what he's trying to do in that book. So you know, there's a precedence there in Heidegger for trying to get to this level, um, and 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 then. And then they're critiquing Freudianism and Marxism, but they're fundamentally transforming Marxism. And then they're and then, and then, you know, the uh, critique of of Freudianism is the critique of, you know, popular ideologies, you know, that control our lives in general.
0: So, uh, uh, Lou, you were about to say something before Ken started. So I want to know what you're. Saying.
6: Yeah, I don't really remember what I wanted to say. I think it was more in the way in that, well, yes, um, Freudian desire can't do all that, but they, but that's kind of the project, right? They try to produce a concept of desire that can do it. Whether they succeed, we will see when we have read their, their attempt, right? So it's kind of the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been struggling the most here. It's almost desire is, is engendering its own self in the sense. So I, I, I guess we're just going to have to see until Chapter 3 because that's when they start connecting it with the whole economic system and stuff. So I guess it'll be interesting.
3: I, I think part of the reason their move can work the way it does is like, so there's desire, right? And they're working with that and it, it does harken back to something like civilization and its discontents or, or Marcuse's uh, Eros and Civilization. But because they're making the move just to say, there's not just desire, there's desiring production. It allows desire. So like first it's a neologism, right? Like it's it's a combination of two, um, two things, which is uh, desire and productivity. And I think that allows them to go even further because they're they're creating this idea and developing uh, not just desire as a libidinal investment, but desire as um, as being uh, inextricable from productivity, um, which they like. They go so far as to say, like, if I remember correctly, in the first part of the book. Uh, you know, even the idea that uh, in capitalism that you can have like the, uh, the three stages of production. And this is the point of production as a, a whole process. Like it's not just the stages, right? Like there's this level of productivity and there's this uh, there's stuff going on that um, isn't reducible to three stages. Although the three stages can kind of be helpful at the same time.
0: I I mean, like, desiring production is essentially just desire coupling flows. And desiring coupling flows into a a long process. The the, the thing I'm finding interesting is that desire is what allows all these syntheses to run. It's almost like desire is this almost, uh, dare I say it, first principle for them, right? right? I mean it's it's it, it, that's why it's, it's 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 very Kantian to me that Kant had pure reason. And if we read Maimon's reading of Kant, Maimon would understand that reason is what constitutes the synthesis. And it's the same way that desire constitutes the synthesis for the losing lottery. So,
6: yes, so
3: you reason reason? Oh, real quick, uh, yes, but it's desiring production, right? Like even on page one twenty-nine they write the actual factor is desiring production. Insofar as it's caught up in the relationship,
0: because I, I think well, that I mean, this, to Desire desiring production is just a coupling of flows via desire. Desire couples flows. Ooh, That's, uh, hang on, it's not just. It's not just. I mean, but 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 that's the entire that's the entire process. It's 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 desire coupling flows. Then you have then you have disjunctions with desire. The the desire creates the the desire of anti production, and then that leads to and then altogether Then then you get subjectivity. But it all starts with the uh, desire coupling flows with desire and production at the very beginning. Okay, you're right. I'll accept it. Could I just that's
5: say I, f- I feel like the I I think you, you have a better grasp of these things in most cases than me, <laughs> Rune. But I think there's a part here where th- we get we get into language games and we're saying oh well desire it's all about desire and that's a principle and it it almost starts to sound like a despotic signifier or a master signifier like oh this thing is it everything is controlled by desire how can desire do all that but. It does seem to me like the you know, the way they talk about it, the materialist pretenses, which is kind of a bit of a, a black joke for them as well, but I think it is serious in that they're they're kind of saying like the way we talk about desire is like it's we're trying to talk about it like you talk about gravity. It's not something you, you can't you can't try and like disprove gravity by saying, Well, how can this one force control everything? Is like, well it's not because it's not really one force. It's a way of talking about a property of All forces. And I think that's why I mentioned the Simondon thing. It's like, you know, far be it for me to claim to be an expert there. But I found that the little reading we did in the Simondon group so enlightening to see kind of like where some of Deleuze's project comes from, because Simondon talks a lot about that idea of like being falling out of a step with itself. And you know how does individuation happen? How where does it even come from? And there's the idea of the Kleineman, they're kind of like rereading these ancient philosophers. But like that, if you want to boil it down to that moment of falling out of step with itself, well, in a way, they're trying to. St- Say okay, what animates that? How does being fall out of a step with itself? How does it begin to set things in motion? And I, I suppose, like Lou said, we're going to find out more in detail as we read the book. But it doesn't seem implausible to me to say, well, there's a there's a form of productive activity that has nothing to do with, you know, an entity wanting another state and trying to turn into that state. And by there, that's how it becomes an individual or a subject. There's a, there's a form of that is just existence itself, being and becoming, that produces things in this way, but, and, and the desire is kind of like the, you know, like the sunlight, or it's the effect that we're kind of seeing from all this, but it's not necessarily like an organizing principle. Anyway, that's kind of how I'm trying to understand these things.
0: Yeah, I like, thanks thanks for that uh, thanks for that example on gravity because that really helps me there. I, I like that way of visualizing it. I mean it's funny you bring up the sun because part of their thing is they take influence from Bataille, his concept of that there is excess, right? And Bataille said that there is solar energy of the excess in the accursed chair and that's part of their idea that desire is an excess in this book. I mean – I, I, th- I think uh, in Simon Don I think the connection with Simon Don is most apparent when they talk about the third synthesis and that the subject passes through a series of metastable states right and that's where it's almost autogenesis happens but I don't know I think I think difference and repetition has more connections with Simon Don
4: one thing that really impressed me when I read the commentaries on Simon Don was, uh, the fact that he used the term the 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 being of becoming, which uh, Adieu focuses on as, some, as a term that uh, that uh, that Deleuze uses, and uh, and I realized that the being of becoming uh, really meant for him this uh, you know the, this you know he also calls it the production of production. It really, may, it really means this state prior to the arising of the difference between uh, being and becoming, and and so that's another way of getting at this stage prior to the arising difference between nature and human humanity.
3: Yeah, and to kind of piggyback off that a little bit, like I don't, I don't think it's. It might be a semantic thing, but I do think it's important here because they've gone so far as to to make a semantic distinction um, because it's desiring production, right? Like that already seems to be a really important move because, like, in Freud and Jung and psychoanalysis, you know, there is desire, and then at the like the more economic level, there is production, and when you have this kind of synthesis going on. Um, whereby desire and productivity, or the production of production, as um, Ken just pointed out, is inextricable from desire. You know that that changes a lot of things about how to understand not just the economy and uh, libidinal economy, but more so how to understand like um, and the unconscious, for that matter. That changes how we're talking about desire and production because at that point, there's a way of talking about them as though they're inextricably linked.
4: Also, I think that the Daniel Smith uh, article about <clears throat> how how what they're really doing is applying Keynesian economics, both Freud, and, uh, Marxism, is is a really interesting take on that you know, kind of a like a theory that unifies these two things, the material realm and the psychological.
3: Yeah, and I, I can't speak too much there, but just from an economic perspective, like the economics I've read and been exposed to, and even in um even in Marx's Das Capital, like you can you can definitely argue there's desire there. But economics doesn't really talk about desire. They talk about utility um, and they talk about how the usefulness of something satisfies a kind of desire. And then like productivity and everything like that is all in service of that, um, that want for utility to create something to satisfy a want or a need. And you can already see that's not exactly the the level of desire that Deleuze and Guattari are uh, talking about here, right? Like for them, desire goes into subjectivity, and it's, right. also uh, is, it's production helps produce it. Go ahead
0: right it's, it's essentially that desire is uh, uh, basically uh, it, it, it's very similar to Nietzsche's notion of the multiplicity of impulses right that there are a certain number of impulses and someone uh, whenever wherever with whatever state mode of being or mode of existence that they're in there's a multiple there's a multiplicity of states that they're that, that they're interacting with or impulses that they're doing was part of what Nietzsche wanted to do was reject against the enlightenment's conception and go back to the body and that's similar to what they're understanding with desire here. So there's no will. It's not like you can will desire. I think the best example is Eugene Holland. He has this ex- nice example of, you know, uh, the, the, the lawyer in the courtroom. He presents evidence. He doesn't will in the evidence. He doesn't create the evidence. It's just that it's flowing through him and he produces the evidence into in that room. I think that's their notion of production. It's not like you're willing something. It's that you're just taking something and, and putting it in a certain location.
4: Yeah. By the way, that- uh, uh, another another uh, point that should be made is that the transformation of Marxism was through the uh, interpretation of Grundris, which had just been, um, you know, uh, published uh, just just prior to to them writing this. I believe I think it was seventy two or something. Anyway, yeah, by the by the way that that article Ken was talking about is it's called flow
0: stack and code by Dan yeah. Smith it's a really great article cuz he talks about essentially how they connect libido to um to what's it called I forgot uh Uh, to Adam's, how how Marx's discovery of libido is very similar to the way uh, Kierkegaard discovered faith in terms of understanding God through faith in terms of potentials in the same way uh, labor understands wealth through potentials and how desire interacts with all these things. I think it's it's a priceless resource for when we read uh, chapter three. So I'll try and link that.
4: And and the, the, the thing is that that, um, that approach has been, uh, created into a, uh, a modeling language called Dynamo, and there's something called systems dynamics. So you can actually build models that work in that way, and what they use them for is to make policy decisions. In other words, they'll, they'll model some kind of system interaction, and then they'll, they'll uh, vary the model based on different policy, policy choices and see how the dynamic interaction changes if you change the policy. And so there's a very concrete model for how this uh, those kinds of uh, systems work from a computational.
3: Yeah, and to stress the point again, right, like if you limit, if you go to the Freudian notion of desire, you don't quite have that level of productivity, you don't quite have that level of producing production of of you know desire even being more than a personal thing, right? Like, uh, to to have desiring production opens up a way of not just like libidinal economy, but again, it allows there to be this this like this level of flow whereby like uh, you know you can even understand the unconscious beyond just the simple person
0: right i mean the thing is it's collective right and not collective in some union sense but collective in the sense that the flows are always invested directly into a social field and the flows are it's like a river flows flow everywhere and then you know some representations come representations come they cause a blockage on that flow they block the flow up in certain in certain manners and that's one example of this is edipalization
3: yeah and that's displacement right
0: um, um, I, I think displacement is more related to... I'm talking about it in a much more general sense, but displacement is more directly related to the fourth parologism, and that's the prohibition of incest, where desires... You you have this almost... Desires fictitiously created in terms of the fact that uh, it's the prohibition that co- that causes you to desire that.
3: Hmm, fair. I, I thought... Well... Uh, either way I, I do have a question for you because I notice we're running out <clears throat> excuse me. I notice we're starting to run out of time and I want to make sure I, I get a chance to inquire about it. And it's probably gonna be something that the people on the review session uh listening to this recording, and even the people yesterday listening to um who, who will go uh the people in the future will listen to yesterday's recording as well as this one will be wondering. I was wondering if we wanted to go into um, what basically closes out the section on pages 128 to one hundred and thirty, uh, which is their discussion of like uh, the virtual and everything. Especially because we we spent kind of the first half of this discussion talking about um, the relationship of reality to uh, not only like psychoanalysis uh, but. You know, the Freudian understand the neurotic and the psychotic and how Deleuze and Guattari are responding to that.
0: Right. I mean, I could go and try and summarize the virtual once again, but I don't know. Does anyone want that? Um,
3: I was thinking maybe we could go through those passages again. Since it's, I think it's effectively two passages, right? Um, we maintain all the way to the end of the what page uh page 128 at the very bottom and it goes into 129 and it's effectively about a page and a half of um text
0: yeah sir, so i'm up the pdf here so could you start us off then
3: <laughs> um sure so like uh do we want to just go into this like Do you want to do another, like, let's read the passage and talk about it, or?
4: I think we should read it because it's complicated.
0: Okay. Uh, You're talking about the big chunk in 129, right?
3: Yeah, the big chunk on 129 with preceding the final two lines of 128.
0: Okay, I'll try and read that out then. (laughs) We maintain that the cause of the disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in their desiring production, in its relation to social production, in their different or conflicting regimes, and their motive, and the mode of investment. The desiring production performs in in the system of social production, the actual factors desiring production, and so far as it is caught up in this relationship, this conflict, and these modalities. Nor this factor, factor, either ulterior or private, being constitutive of the full life of desire it is contemporary with the most tender age and it accompanies this life with every step it does not arise after Oedipus it in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization nor a pre-Oedipal pre-organization on the contrary it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production either as a stimulus or one form or another a simple inductator through which the anedipal organization of desiring production is formed so I think uh, I'll just try to Break it down. I think we need to go slowly here. The fact that Oedipus depends on desiring production. This is uh, so. I think one simple way to think about this is go back to the first chapter, right? The fact that um, the the body without organs is 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 a. It's, it's, it's in the miraculating stage of machine, in the creation of the miraculating machine, it seems like all production emanates from the body without organs. But instead, in reality, the body without organs is produced by desiring machines, right? It's when there's a production of anti production, which leads to the disjunction of two machines and a sign connection of that disjunction registering as the product identity. Right, on the body with that organs has that it's it's if if there is no body without organs, the schizophrenic table would just be continued to producing into this grotesque thing. It's the body without organs that leads to that disjunction and allows an identity to be made on the on the surface, allowing the, the table to be produced as a you know a product identity of the table. And so what they're saying here, if Oedipus is recorded on the body with that organs itself, Oedipus is itself created in the process of desiring production. It's all being created from that primary primordial process of desiring production. And Oedipus is then recorded on. So I'll read that again. On the contrary, it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production, either as a stimulus of one form or another, a simple inductator through which the anodipal organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, or as an effect of psychic and social repression imposed by desiring production, by social reproduction, by means of the family." So, I mean, again, it's a, it, psychic repression causes you to desire more social repression, essentially, and they're working back off each other. The term actual is not used because it designates what is most recent and because it would be opposed to former or infantile. It is used in, diff- in terms of its difference with respect to virtual, and it's the Oedipus complex that is virtual, either in as much as it must be actualized in a neurotic, neurotic formation or as a derived effect of the actual factor or inasmuch as it is dismembered in the dissolve in the psychic formation as a direct effect of the same factor. It is indeed that this sense that the idea of the afterwards seems to us to be the final paralogism in psychoanalytic theory and practice – Active desire and production in its very process invest from the invest from the beginning of somatic, social, and metaphysical relations that do not follow after Oedipal cyclorization, but on the contrary will be applied to the underlining Oedipal Const- constellation defined by reaction, or else F- will exclude the this constellation from the field of investment, constituting their activity undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional, such as Oedipus. It is only reactional formation or a formation that results from a reaction to desired production. It is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. So, I mean, I have my own thoughts on that. I could go on, but I've been talking for a while. If anyone else wants to share something before I say my stuff.
3: So, right, like, as we were saying earlier, Freud wants to understand... The neurotic and psychotic in terms of how it relates to reality, right? And that reality um, is going to be intermediated by the Oedipal. But it looks like they're starting out this passage by saying that that is not exactly how you want to understand this, right? Instead, the cause is not in the... um, in the relation to reality through the Oedipal, the clause is in relation to desiring production and its relationship with social produ- production, right? right?
0: And the key thing here is that desiring production creates social production in the mess, and then social production works back upon it. And so uh, the, the, the thing that I'm finding interesting here is that they specifically talk about Oedipus being virtual. And Virtual has to do with, I I don't think they're using it as complex as they do in Difference and Repetition, where they built the whole ontology of, uh, you know, an ontology of becoming, an ontology of individuation, an ontology for nonlinear mathematics and all that kind of stuff i think what they're doing with with the virtual in this case they're just referring to oedipus as a potential because part of the body without organs is it registers potential and i I think when when they talk about the miraculating machine in chapter one the fact that it attracts everything to it uh, i mean i'm I'm seeing oedipus as a similar way that oedipus is created there, but it's, it's 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 applied in the sense that it's it's uh, it, it, it's happening. Even though Oedipus is created, it seems like Oedipus was there from the very beginning, right? They say that that's why they say that. Uh, they say they say that the body without organs is similar to God, but not exactly God. It's because I mean, I think one easy way to think about this is is Feuerbach's notion of God. Right? Feuerbach says that uh, God, man created God. But so if Feuerbach's an atheist, he says man created God. But in in actuality, what if, if if you're not an atheist and you don't see that notion fully, you'd think God created man, but man created God. So so man could believe that God created man it's a similar thing with the body without organs in this case that uh, Oedipus came from the beginning but I, I think that what they're saying is that Oedipus was actually created in, in this sense that it, it's Oedipus was not something that when you were born in the case it's that Oedipus is virtual Oedipus is created as a potential but not as something that's actually given to you when you're born it's that it's, it's added in through a, it, it, it's created in the same process of social repression and all that jazz that we learned about in the previous sections it's not something of human ontological nature
3: yeah that's very good i i really like your analysis there and it goes further right too so as to say that even if you want to make the freudian move of saying things are going to be pole, that in and of itself for Deleuze and watery relies on desiring production So if anything is still going to be actually Oedipal, it is only because of the actuality of desiring production that that that's even possible and going to work. And I I like, too, the distinction that this is not ulterior or privative, right? Like, there's nothing here that's a superseding motive nor a a hidden motive that makes anything possible in the neurotic or the psychotic uh, like Varun's saying, right, like, where they write, um, it is contemporary when, with the most tender age, and it accomplishes this life with every step. It did not, not arise after Oedipus. It in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization, nor a pre-Oedipal pre-organization. Right, like, I, I think um, part of what I'm getting out of this is, like, even if you're not going to centralize things through Oedipus, like, like they said earlier, Oedipus never heard of them. As desiring production flows, it's not relying on Oedipus for its cues any more than it would be relying on uh, something something like Oedipus.
0: I mean I find these chapters really confusing for me because uh, in terms of difference and repetition, I, I see them using the virtual in a very different way. So it's, 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 it's sort of hard to sort of gauge myself then of, of where this lies and to lose the entire corpus. Or maybe I'm just wrong and I'm just reading this, this entire paragraph incorrectly.
4: Well, he doesn't talk about the virtual very much in this whole book as far as I know. This is one of the few passages,
3: right? Yeah, and so I'm wondering, too, like, because the body without organs fills up with intensities in that during um, the, the desiring production process. Uh, would you guys agree with me if I said, like, Oedipus is one of the subjectivities that can occur during the desiring production? that during the desiring production uh, productive process insofar as it could fill up among other intensities in the body of the organs and be transferred through the celibate machine?
0: So um, I I think we're making a bit of confusion with terms here because it gets very dense. Um, I'll try and simplify it, but Oedipus is, is a triangulation. Right. It's mommy, daddy and me. And the thing is, when Oedipus is on the body without organs, rather than the body with that organs being an either or 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 something like that, where you have complete inclusion, you have some sort of exclusion with the Oedipus where you have. okay, so it's either mom or dad, something like that, instead of either or, or 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 or. Right. That and the thing about the either or 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 it's 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 a uh, it's a differentiation, but a differentiation without a negation, because that's that that would be too Hegelian for Deleuze and Guattari. So so that's it. that's what's happening on on that aspect. But but the case about uh, subjectivity. I mean, the key thing to understand about subjectivity is subject. The way subjectivity is not a representation is that it's a state you pass through. It's 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 almost like an affect. Like it, that's why they describe it so visually about I am feeling like I'm becoming woman or something like that, because uh, you know it's it's in, it's 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 joy right? It's 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 so the schizo this, the way the schizo can identify with history is because the hits the schizo is not identifying with names, What the schizo is identifying with is experiences. It's a very imminent thing as to something transcendent, like a signifier of a name. And what the schizo is doing by by, by all those things, it's about it's 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 very much very, very it's very Nietzschean. Again, it's about it's about that feeling of uh, of the effect of something. And so That's I'm a awesome. little, little bit confused about your question about how edifice is a subjectivity. I mean, if you're talking about if you're talking about like some sort.
3: So, I don't think, based on what you just said, I don't think you have disagreed with me. What I'm basically saying is, effectively, since the body without organs is filling up with intensities during the uh, desiring, uh, during the process of production, right? And during the third synthesis, those intensities can be um, transferred onto the subject through the celibate machine, and so what they're going to say is like. You can call those effects, like you're saying, um, exactly like you said, actually, where what the person is feeling gets named through things like history or literature, so as to as to be a way of um, th- uh, sort of understanding the effect, and so as to say, so that's what it was.
0: I mean, that, that's what that's what intensity is, right? It's an intense feeling, or maybe, yeah, or maybe... <laughs>
3: yeah. and and so basically, what I'm saying. Is if there is going to be an Oedipal subjectivity, it is no more than an Oedipal effect among many other potential effects during the desiring during the process of production.
0: And that would depend more on if it was a if it was for primary repression or miraculation. Right, that the body without organs has two functions. It has one function of primary repression, and it has one function of miraculation, where all this, where machines form so many disjunctions as to create a complex network of words. Oh, well, I think I memorized that, but that that's that that's almost an exact quote. I think that's exactly what it is. That oedipalization edip- occurs when it when there's primary re- when it's, it's the this is what the body without organs in the state of primary repression where there's less degrees of intensity as compared to the miraculating machine having more greater degrees of and, and intensities and I think I'd like to clarify what I mean by that it's not a negation right because the, the, the thing is it's, it, the body without our organs is a zero and the way the intensities works it's, it's almost in, in terms of a scale so if the body without our organs is a zero you can't compare it to a negation intensities form a relation it's, it's, it's almost like a numerical relationship with compared to the zero of the body without organs did we
4: lose uh, Jack Pars? Uh, he's back now, I think. Can you guys... Oh, there.
3: Hello? You okay? Yeah, my, my Wi-Fi is not, though. It's the second time today I've bounced out. But, um, uh, Bruno, I caught most of what you said. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. Right, like, there's... It's like that Oedipal recording, and it's also the way, like, uh, the Oedipal recording can limit the process of production, right, and produce not only a double bind, but um, can also try to limit the different subjectivities the subject passes through on the body without organs and try to maintain that it's all just an edible effect, if nothing else.
0: Yeah, I mean, the true thing for the schizo is that he's nomadic, I and mean, even if, even the fact that I'm saying the word he makes no sense in this context because it's, it's a strange subject that passes and there's no way of discerning it because it's so nomadic and, I mean so the thing about the oedipalization the, the body without organs can be distinct in two ways right in the terms of the, the miraculating machine and the paranoiac machine so Oedipus has, has a greater relation to the paranoiac machine while potentials have a greater relation to the miraculating machine
3: yeah yeah I think you're right about that and even then like
0: and that's why I think I think the virtual has more to do with the miraculating machine, because virtual is it's all about potentials and difference and repetition.
3: Yeah, I could see that, and I, I would even say too, like it also for me it seems to be also be connected to the um, the celibate machine, because I I do think you can maintain that there is an Oedipus effect, but it's one effect among many others.
0: I mean, all these syntheses are happening simultaneously, so there is always a celibate machine being produced. And a celibate machine is is, is, is essentially the, is, is, is the resolution, but a never complete resolution, of what happens between the forces of attraction, which is the miraculating machine, and the forces of repulsion, which is the paranoiac machine. It's that relationship which produces the celibate machine. So it is very much related to triangulation on the body without organs, or the double bind on the body without organs.
3: Yeah, that made sense. It even reminds me of that passage where they say, so I am king, therefore the kingdom is mine, right? Like, just like yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, that, that whole thing is that um, uh, the, the, the mistake that there's a false objective movement in the celibate machine in the sense that you think you're in control but rather it's the desires that move you and if you think you're in control you think you think uh, uh, it's yours right that that the kingdom is mine but rather it's the sense that it, you've been produced in a certain way by your social environment and it's your social environment which leads you to do this and that's not it's not the desires have been connected in so many different formations that have led to the subjectivity it's not that you chose the subjectivity that's why it's always retroactive so that's what that was
3: yeah that made sense to me although for some reason i think to remember they say something like so that's what it is too but um either way like yeah I, i think i agree with you on all of that um and so with that in terms of the virtual i think that kind of works for what we're talking about in terms of the virtual being the potentiality Um, during the process of desiring production.
0: Right. I mean, I think it's part of the confusion for me is because they talk about this very differently in A Thousand Plateaus, too. And, of course, to make it more confusing, it's completely different in the logic of sense as well. I mean, some there's a whole controversy. I mean, some people, some, some Toulouse scholars think that the virtual is the same throughout and the body without organs is the, the same throughout. And some people think, no, it's different throughout. So I, I don't think we're ever going to find the right and wrong answer here.
4: That's uh. true. Okay. I vote. I vote for different,
0: and I'm voting for different too.
4: <laughs> yeah,
3: I haven't read as much to lose as you guys, but um, just well, in terms of like oh, good.
4: Well, I just want to mention Bergsonism again. That I think that's uh, what I base my understanding on. Then, based on that, then you can. See the variations of the way those different things are used uh, in different contexts to lose.
3: Yeah, and that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, all that said then, so were they right? So right like they they, they then moved to critique the idea that the actual can be um, as designating, like, something that's former or infantile, right? So it's directly back into Freud. Um, So, like, if you move from there, it goes, and it is the Oedipal complex that is virtual, either in as much as it must be actualized into a neurotic formation as a derived effect of the actual factor, or in as much as it is dismembered and dissolved into a psychotic formation is the direct effect of this same factor. So as I'm understanding them there, they're trying to say, like, the way we're talking about how people are interacting with reality and desiring production, that has an actuality to it. And then if, they're, if we're going to talk about the Oedipal complex, that's something virtual in the sense that it's a potentiality, like Varun was saying, but it's a potentiality insofar as it either has to be actualized into the formation of a, neur- a neurotic um, because of the effect of desiring production, which is the actual factor.
0: Or... Right, I mean it. Go ahead. No, you finish your point first.
3: Uh, it has to be actualized into the neurotic formation and actualized bringing us back into desiring production, taking it into the neurotic or it has to be dissolved into the psychotic formation with desiring production, uh, effectively breaking the virtuality of the Oedipal complex.
0: Yeah, I mean, the key thing is that the body where that has a network, I mean, they say it's a signifying chain, but they've departed so far from Lacan's notion of it just being language. It's that... It's, it's almost like a node, as Craig said a while back, that you have a node of network relations. It's almost, dare I say it, rhizomatic. And uh, um, essentially, what, what, that's, where, you know, that's where virtuality happens. But the key point is that it's desiring production at a very primordial level. And it's a disjunction of anti-production that leads to the, the body where that organ is being created, right? And that's why I give the example of Feuerbach and atheism.
3: Yeah, and because desiring production is going to be the actuality we're working with, um, that means the the Oedipal is virtual um, insofar as it needs to be actualized by desiring production.
0: Yeah, no, this is what's pissing me off, because now we're so far from the virtual and for difference in
4: repetition. <laughs> this is, it's- Well, the, the reason the reason I like Bergsonism is that he mentions all of them at the same time, rather than just in pairs. Because normally they're just talked about in pairs.
0: Yeah, I've not read Bergsonism, so I have to check that out. But I know the virtual, the original concept of virtual comes from Bergsonian time, and Deleuze sort of plays around with that.
3: Yeah. So, with that said. Um, so like they give us the final paralogism here right? And so it might be worth uh, trying to formalize the conception of the fifth par- the fifth paralogism.
0: I, I mean it's the sense that the production productions there at the very beginning, but that's not what's taken that it's, it's the fact that Oedipus is taken as the as, as the beginning of all things. And uh, uh, rather than desiring production, the same way that the body without organ seems to be at the beginning of all all things rather than um, desire production at the beginning.
3: Would it be fair to say the fifth paralogism is where the virtual precedes the actual as opposed to the actual, um, as opposed to a different relationship where the virtual can only be where the virtual relies on the actual to be actualized instead the virtual instead the ugh. Let me try this again.
0: No, I see what, I see what you mean uh, I I understand but I'm not sure if that's exactly what structuralism is cuz I'm not super confident with this chapter yet but um, <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 I think that's sort of my understanding. I mean, the, the, the you know the five ones we've had was that we'd had we've had extrapolation, we've had uh, the double bind, we have we've had uh, uh, by bi- vocal, right. bi- vocalization, and then application and displacement and all that. So, I I think this is the fifth one. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not super sure
3: though. I'll... Yeah, it- let me try to try to formalize it. I think the fifth paralogism is to say the virtual... It seems like the fifth paralogism relies on the distinction of the virtual and actual and their relationship. And the way I'm reading this right now, and to take a stab at it... Because this also gets into the real, but um, it looks like the fifth paralogism is effectively the way that the vert instead of the instead of the virtual relying on the actual for actualization the actual gets subsumed into the virtual
0: and- okay i think, I, I, think I, I think i figured out how to explain it then so essentially what we need to think about is that right think about the way the the body with that organ seems to be the source of everything right i think again i'll just re, re- i'll just try to re Organize that the example of Feuerbach makes it a little bit simpler. That uh, Feuerbach says that man created God, but then if you're not an atheist, you believe that God created man. It's a similar thing here with Oedipus uh, for desiring production. Desiring production creates Oedipus in the sense that the, the virtual happens in the body of that organs in, in the sense that it's a disjunction that happens after the first process of desiring production, and Oedipus is created. However, psychoanalysis sees Oedipus as the beginning, as Oedipus as an ontological nature of something that's actual rather than virtual.
3: Yeah, I think that's effectively what I'm getting at, is that um, it, this is probably a reductionist way of looking at it, but it effectively looks like what the fifth paralogism is, is that the virtual precedes the actual instead of the actual and virtual having this more horizontal relationship with the actual being desiring production. And that's sort of leading the way of the virtual being actualized. And in that way, the actual takes a kind of, um, I don't want to say a precedence, but certainly an importance because it is going to be the actuality of it. And if I could uh, go a little bit further and try to connect that with the the reality principle. That means, too, that the way Freud is trying to understand the neurotic and psychotic in terms of the reality principle. do Do you actually want me to stop? Right, but for Freud, it is the reality principle, right? Like, that's going to be how he makes the move of the neurotic and psychotic, which Deleuze and Watery are, are going against here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, not, not, I think you're overcomplicating this.
3: Mm, maybe.
0: I mean, because we're not dealing with that, and we're dealing very directly with Oedipus. I mean, a lot of psychoanalysis they agree with. They say that Freud. I mean, if you one way to look at it was their theory of desire is very similar to Freud before Freud figured out Oedipus. Now I'm going to say it's not exactly the same thing, but it was very similar until Freud said Oedipus is the one you know thing that everything needs to fall into.
3: Yeah, but um, because they open up with that remark about. So because it's the section about neurosis and psychosis and because they start out with uh, neurosis, the ego obeying the requirements of reality and stands ready to repress the drives of the id, whereas in psychosis, the ego is under the sway of the id, ready to break with reality. And because they're going to start out the section we just um, closely read with, we maintain that the cause of the disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in desiring production so there does seem to be um i understand you're gonna ban me when i say this there does seem to be something going on in relation to the freudian um reality principle and its relationship in freudian psychoanalysis with the ego and id as it relates to designating the neurotic and psychotic
0: I, i mean so uh one thing we should Think about is it. that again? Desiring production is primordial. It's that very thing in the beginning, and and it's the very imminent thing. Whereas Oedipus, they think Oedipus is the create, is, is is that transcendent thing of Oedipus is the is the thing that creates everything? But it's it's not imminent, right? So yeah, I think but, that's they, the yeah
4: but yeah, but they said uh, desiring production is real. They keep saying desiring uh, reality is there. Maybe yeah, I mean, that's what. And maybe that's not why, Freudian not maybe not
0: Freudian reality, but reality is I mean that's that's why that's why it's imminent. That's why design production is imminent. It's because it's very much real.
3: Right. And it's not just real, it's the actual. So like if I remember correctly, earlier in the book they, they had said that reality is like the plane of possibility or something to that effect. That is so yeah. different.
0: Uh, I mean you're confusing it with Lacan's notion of the real because they they reread yeah I'm telling the capital R real they reread where Lacan says the real is the impossible Deleuze and Guattari say the real is where everything is possible
3: right but that's I don't think I confused it I said that Deleuze and Guattari say the real is the plane of possibility oh. so
4: yeah. so so this is exactly why you know Bergsonism is the is the key book because they talk about all four of these things at the same time in that, rather than just pairs of. And as long as you've got pairs going, then there's always the fact that the other two are in the background and you, you can't get a complete picture of the whole structure.
3: Yeah.
0: Right, I right. mean, I mean, I mean does that, does, does, yeah, you're right. I mean, the the, the, post, the I mean, don't confuse it with possibilities. <laughs> well, it's a lot of citations. Kent. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: Well, you said that there you said that there was some criticism out there. I just wanted to find out if that was true.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Sorry you got distracted me with that. <laughs> well, the thing is that uh, uh, the 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 I I don't want to use the word possibilities because they make a key point in difference and repetition to say that you know the virtual is the potential. If you say it's po- if you say it's possibilities, that means that it may not be real. Possibility implies that it may may be this, maybe not. Um, potential means that it's very much real. It's in the system. That's why uh, Delando's example of nonlinear mathematics works so well here, right? That the irreversibility of evolution means that there are a certain set of potentials in the environment of all times. So I think that's a much cleaner way of looking at it
3: right but let me try and state this and, and then you can critique me because I i'm do- not
0: critiquing you I'm, I'm not critiquing you i'm agreeing with you oh i'm just, okay. I'm, just I'm just cleaning up your words
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate that um to me that is a critique and, and, and a, a, one i appreciate because i i think i have a way of uh, trying to think about this that might that actually um is harmonious with what you're saying right the way I'm thinking about this is, if reality is the plane of um, possibility, then reality is what is possible, and that way, it could be, it could not be.
0: I mean, again, again just use the word potential versus possible. That's that's exactly what he's trying. He he, he tenses so hard in, in those two books.
3: See, I was going to use potentiality to designate what. Is what might yeah what might get actualized, and what's sort of um, what's present there in the virtual, waiting to, that has the potential to be actualized.
4: You know, you know uh, using the term potential is confusing because potential is sometimes used for possibility. So you know, I think what's in the virtual are these tendencies and dispositions.
0: It's almost like it's almost like the things in between, right? In a complex system, it's the things in between. Uh, yeah,
3: yeah, and Kent, that's exactly what I'm trying to do: is to to try and uh, articulate a way of understanding possibility as the in connection with the real and potentiality in connection with the virtual.
4: Yeah, I, I think potentiality can be used for the virtual, but it's confusing because they also use potentiality for. You know, like Aristotle uses it.
3: Yeah, and there is definitely a difficulty to it. But um, the reason I'm trying to go that far is to say, like, because of the way they're laying out reality in connection with the actual and the virtual here, that is, um, that move takes us into a whole different conception of um of what's going on as opposed to the Freudian reality principle and the way he was setting up how to understand the neurotic and psychotic, which seems to be a major conclusion of this section.
4: I'd just like to mention that one way of clarifying this is looking at different kinds of mathematics that apply to these different things. And so, for instance, actuality is described mathematically as probability you know the real is described mathematically with calculus the yeah. possibilities are described by fuzzy math fuzzy uh, fuzzy set theory and, yeah. and 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 there's a there's a theory by a guy named Watanabe who tried to come up with what he called propensity theory and so there are people in math who have tried to formalize these different kinds of relations and sometimes it helps to look at those formalizations in order to get a good idea of what is the difference between these different kinds of uh, ideas.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the only things that was able to wake me up from my dogmatic slumber of looking at, at, I was, I was not able to conceptualize how the the potential is real until I looked at it through a mathematical lens. So I grew you there.
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, my math, my mathematical lens is not strong, so I might be um that might be part of the struggle for me here. But I do I do think I do think there is something to the idea that uh, of the reality as um, the possible and its relation to the actual and virtual here, and its connection in juxtaposition with the Freudian reality. Um. Which I don't even know if that really includes the virtual and actual for Freud. I I'd probably say it doesn't. Uh, but anyways, uh, and the way that this is all connecting to how we're going to understand the neurotic and psychotic, and how that actually seems to sort of like completely get reoriented when you apply Deleuze and Guatery to it. It almost right. it goes so far as I would say, like, it comes with the deedipalization.
4: This is the value of Delanda because he he does a very good job of uh, defining the virtual mathematics. Yeah, uh, exactly. But 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 the thing is that he doesn't really talk about probabilities, which are the actual. He doesn't really talk about fuzzy stuff. You know, he he he's he's talking mostly about complexity theory and calculus.
3: Yeah. And I'm trying to keep it simple and so as to say that the possibility is what, if the real is the possible, then what we're going to accept into our reality is the things that, um, I I, need a word that isn't possible for possible.
4: So so, so I'd like to bring this discussion down to a very simple, you know, if you're shooting arrows at a target one of the things you learn in archery is to cluster the arrows hitting the target and then try to move the cluster toward the the center of the target right so so if you if you think of that as the example then then uh, probabilities have to do with each where each arrow actually hits the target right and and you can describe those with probability distribution but but the but the real has to do with the uh, the in calculus the perfect you know using calculus the perfect arc of the uh, it's going to hit the center of the of the of the uh, of the target. But like possibility has to do with the um, uh, the fact you could fire off straight overhead or off to the right. I mean there are many possibilities. Around that you could fire your arrow in any different way uh, or not fire it. All of those are possibilities. And then the and then the and then the the thing about tendencies and dispositions is that as you as you fire that arrow, it's kind of like there's the butterfly effect that that there's all of these little tendencies and dispositions of your body and the, the, the the strength of the arrows and the wood that it's made out of and the wood that your bow's made out of and all of those things together all those little dispositions and tendencies determine where it's going to hit in any 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 particular time including the air the wind so, so if if you take if you take that 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 analogy right and you think of these things in terms of that analogy then you've got a central way of looking at what are we talking about
3: So then if I'm going to apply your your analogy, I would say that the possibility of shooting upwards, shooting downwards, or any direction would be the real as I'm understanding it. The different factors going into um, me shooting the arrow or whoever shooting the arrow and doing that, that seems to me to be the actuality and all the things getting manifested in that or that could get manifested in that would seem to me to be the virtual.
0: Right, but the virtual is very much real.
3: Yes, I'm not
4: trying to say it's not.
0: And, 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 the, and, and it's a potential, not a possibility in the virtual. So, well, I mean... See, it, see, it,
4: yeah. what's, interesting here, what's interesting here is he's talking about the going from the virtual to the actual in this particular place but there is this relationship between the virtual and the real which is which is uh very significant and there's this relationship between the actual and the possible that's very significant and so unless you have all four fact uh, all four of these characteristics in play at the same time it starts getting confusing and i think that's what we're running into
3: Yeah, and unfortunately, we're, we're running out of time, although I think this is, I think this has been a good discussion because I think this is going to be um, a major point, uh, not only for understanding this section, but for understanding other elements of uh, this book, as well as Deleuze and um, his work with Watery. But with that, I think we're probably going to have to call it uh, quits with the discussion. So uh, thank you all for being here.